You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Hello, Resonate. It's good to be with you today. My name is Matthew Young. I'm the site pastor in Moscow. And glad to get to share with you today's sermon in our second week of this sermon series we are calling The Feels. Uh, Today, we are going to continue to talk about our emotions. And our hope throughout this sermon series is to help you understand your emotions better, but also to understand that you have emotions. Um, Throughout this series, we're not asking, do you have emotions? But we're saying, are your emotions mature? Are you growing in maturity in your emotional, uh, the emotional side of who you are? We know that we all have emotions. It's something that's just part of being human. And uh, we also know that that's uh, because of God who we're made in the image of. We see throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament, we see that God has emotions. And so we get those from Him. We also know that Keith talked about this last week, and he gave us a, a pie chart, if you will, that helps communicate that we as humans are made up of lots of different parts. So we have emotions, we have our physical side, physical reality, we have our intellectual reality, social realities, and, and spiritual reality, and all of these make up who we are. But we also talked about how it's not as clean cut as this, as you know, these pieces of pie, instead it looks more like this. It's all kind of mixed and mingled in there together, and there's overflow from our emotions to our physical side and our spiritual and our intellectual, and all these things are kind of this amalgamum in, our, in, our, in the reality of who we are. And uh, we, we experience this, that idea of being hangry, you know that one? Uh, physically, I may be hungry, um, but it makes me feel angry. So, or you may be really tired. Physically, you need a nap, um, and subsequently, you feel frustrated. Uh, we're familiar with this reality, and so um, as we continue to talk about these emotions, uh, we, we recognize that sometimes they're pointing to something else. Sometimes there's even a, a primary emotion that actually um, uh, is, and, and there's secondary emotions. So sometimes we may recognize a secondary emotion first, and that's actually pointing to a primary emotion. That primary emotion may be pointing to uh, something else that's going on in our life, either physically or intellectually, spiritually or socially. Um, sometimes it's really difficult to understand what's happening in this emotional aspect of who we are. And so uh, our Resonate content team has put together um, a toolbox, if you will, that you can actually access at resonate.net slash resources. And from there, you'll see uh, the logo for the fields, and you can click on that and, uh, and download that. And, and there's lots of different exercises, extra content, um, dealing with the different emotions that we'll be talking about and some that we're not talking about in the sermons but are definitely part of our life. And so I encourage you to check that out. Um, there, within that, one of those resources is a list of feelings. Um, and this is really helpful. This is a, a, a tool that uh, many counselors use to help people who are trying to understand what it is they're feeling. Sometimes you don't quite have the words to describe what is this feeling that I'm having. And so sometimes just having a list of words, you're like, that's it. That's the one. That's what I'm feeling right now. So I encourage you to check that out, uh, a really helpful resource. Um, today, our emotion that we're going to talk about is shame. Shame. And even as I say that, I know that you may like recoil a little bit um, because shame tends to be something that's a sensitive subject. If you have a wound, you're like, hey, I'm going to cover that up or I'm, I, don't touch that. That's, that's difficult to deal with. And yet that's where we're going today. So you may also question, is shame really an emotion or is it a, is it a thought pattern? Well, it might be both, but uh, it certainly is an emotion. It might also be a thought pattern. Again, that connectedness of our emotions and our intellect and our feelings and our physical, all of that comes together. And shame certainly touches all of those things. Um, 
like we talked about last week, is many of these emotions, even though we may perceive them as a negative thing, they don't necessarily have to be negative. Last week, Keith talked about anger, and again, sometimes that we see that as a negative thing, but um, but we also we 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 saw last week that anger can be positive, it can be helpful, it can be good. We saw Jesus use it in a helpful way. Um, we also learned that with shame, and this may be hard to uh, swallow, but shame can be good. Here's what I mean. In its most helpful version, um, shame is simply a feeling that reveals that we are not perfect. It reveals that we don't have it all together. It reveals that we make mistakes. Shame points to that. Sometimes in neon lights, uh, shame points to that reality. So in a good way, shame can lead to humility, which throughout the Bible is seen as a helpful virtue, a good thing. It can give us a sober view of ourselves that then leads us to depend on God and be open to others, people in our life, um, and get help from them. God's put them there on purpose. So we're able to go to Him. We're able to go to the people that God has put in our life. Shame can help us get there and get to that place. Secondly, shame can reveal hurts that aren't always physical. If I were to get a cut on my arm, I'd be like, ow, that hurts. I see that that's not okay. I need to get a Band-Aid and put it on that thing. The physical hurt is obvious. But sometimes our, uh, our psychological or emotional hurts are not as easy to identify. And so when we recognize the emotion of shame, it can say, hey, there's something there. There's something there that needs to be dealt with. There's something there that we need to take care of before it gets infected, if you will. And so it helps reveal these things that sometimes are hard to see in our life. You may reject that understanding that shame can be positive, and that's fine. My wife and I had a lively conversation debating whether or not shame can be positive or not, but uh, that's not the point of this whole sermon because we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about the negative realities of shame in our life um, because that's a negative perspective of shame is the, per the pervasive understanding, and that's why this is so important for us to talk about today because for many of us, shame is debilitating. The uh, psychologist and researcher, uh, Brene Brown, um, whose TED Talk on vulnerability, you've probably seen it, over 53 million people have viewed that TED Talk, um, where she talks about shame a little bit there, and then she came back a year later and did a second TED Talk that's been seen by 15 million people. If you haven't seen that one, I encourage you to, see, to watch it, uh, where she talks about shame specifically. And, uh, and in that, she says that shame is highly correlated to addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, eating disorders, and suicide. And so if our shame unchecked can lead to those things, we must learn to deal with it and understand this emotion in a healthy way. And so today I want us to go there. I want us to get into that and, uh, and hopefully see God speak to us and, uh, and call us into something better and a better way to handle our shame. Our shameful feelings and thought patterns uh, keep us from God. And, life, and, and the life that God has for us. And so if shame is keeping us from that, then, then we have to deal with it. Um, shame can become like a personal prison that removes us from life as God intended it to be lived. And so to define this more clearly, uh, I want us to, to look at it this way. Uh, Christian counselor Ed Welch says that shame is the deep sense that you, you are inherently flawed and unacceptable and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something that's been done to you, or something associated with you. And so shame 
says that, hey, there's been some, there's something wrong with you. It's not, and we all know that uh, we're not perfect. That's part of it. But this part of being unacceptable or unworthy of love. And so um, shame can like, take us to some dark places. Oftentimes it's confused with guilt. Shame and guilt are sometimes uh, assumed to be the same thing, but in reality they are not. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Whereas shame says, I am a mistake. Shape, uh, guilt has to do with our doing. Shame has to do with our being. Uh, guilt says, hey, I did that thing. Shame is connected to our identity and how we view ourselves. To say, I'm a mistake, that goes to a dark place. Oftentimes, as you see these things in quotes, uh, and we'll see this throughout as we talk today, it gets to this negative self-talk. And so oftentimes, uh, shame is seen as usually tied to a false belief of, I am what I am, I cannot change, and I am hopeless. In this, this process of trying to think through what's happened in our life and these feelings that we get, it leads us to these beliefs. Again, it's connectedness of our intellect and our belief system is connected to these emotions. And so we come to this place where we're saying these thoughts that this is who I am. I can't do anything about it. And it's hopeless. This relationship is hopeless. This project is hopeless. Uh, my life is hopeless. And so if this is, if this is the thoughts that then are spurred on by this emotion, uh, we have to learn to deal with this. All kinds of things can induce shame in our lives. Uh, three different categories of ways that, um, that shame is induced. The first one is our sin. Our sin. We make mistakes. We don't do things as we are supposed to, as we're called to, as the Bible says we should, as God says we should. We make these mistakes, places where we've messed up. But then within that, we say, hey, I am a mess up. <laughs> and so this can lead to ongoing addiction and habitual sin. It goes from, I made this mistake once, to an ongoing reality in our life. Um, a lot of times uh, that shame is induced by um, sexual sin. Um, when, we, uh, when we engage in sexual sin of, of all different types, um, because it's so personal, because it's so intimate, and sometimes because of a purity culture within, our, within the church and within Christian community, uh, it's almost like sexual sin is seen as like this dark sin that can never be forgiven, or it's the un unpardonable sin. And that's not true, but yet that's how we feel about it. And it put, leads us to this place of isolation, this dark, this dark place of sin and shame, uh, shame from our sin. Also, with that, sometimes uh, our sin um, comes, leads us to shame because of our past ways that we've hurt other people. And so a lot of times this is in relationships and we recognize I've sinned against you. And subsequently, not only are there scars in your life, but I know that I've hurt you. And so every time I see you, everybody, every time I think about our relationship and what I did, now, now I have shame and I want to avoid that relationship and relationships like that. Um, and so we remain uh, isolated um, in those relationships because of our own sin and shame pushes us there. So not only is it our sin, but also it can be sin done to us. And this is important that not always is shame something that's our fault, but sometimes it's something that someone else did. A lot of times this is associated with abuse, whether that be physical or sexual or verbal abuse. And in a situation where someone has done this to us, and a lot of times it's someone who's an authority or someone that was supposed to be safe, or someone that we trusted, whether it be a parent or a friend or someone in authority like a professor or a ministry leader who has shamed us or led us to a place where we felt shame uh, because of something they did to us. 
And so maybe that someone spoke to you or treated you in a way that led you to feel worthless and broken and hopeless. And you need to hear me say today that that was not your fault. That's something that was someone else's sin done to you. But I do understand. And the reality of shame is that sometimes we find this, this, uh, this feeling of shame and these thoughts, uh, these shameful thoughts um, that are spurred on by what someone else does to us. And the third thing is things that happen to us. It's not necessarily sinful, but it's just reality in a broken world that sometimes bad things happen. And so these things may be a medical condition or a disability um, that we began to have emotions of shame from. Maybe something like infertility or, uh, or it could be something even connected with like a personality quirk that I think, hey, this is the way I view the world or the way I think and, uh, and this is always going to be with me. And, and we feel like it's flawed because the people around us say that's bad or the people around us say they don't do it that way or think that way. It could be a, a shame can come from that. Um, or it could be something like an attraction to someone that you don't want to be attracted to, but yet, nonetheless, there it is. You're attracted to, uh, to someone that you recognize, um, maybe Scripture says is not okay or, or something like that, and this feeling of shame can come from that and lead you into isolation or, um, from that. Or it could be something like socioeconomic status um, that the, of the, from the family that you, you grew up in and were born into. You didn't choose that family. You didn't choose uh, whether or not you had wealth or not. And yet there you are. And, uh, and that affects you maybe in comparison to other people around you. And so sometimes it's just reality of, of your life. And these things can spur on emotions of shame in our lives. Uh, the thing about shame or the thing about emotions is that they are signs. Um, there are signs that point to something else. Uh, they help clarify uh, what's going on, as we said, as, as all those things are twisted or, or mixed and connected to one another. And so uh, I want to give us a list of things that are signs of shame in our life. And this may be uh, carried out in our emotions and our beliefs or our behaviors where we begin to see these signs of shame in our life, ways that shame can manifest in our life. And so there's 10 of them. It's a lot, I know. But uh, shame can affect us in a lot of ways. Again, that's why we're talking about this um, and so I encourage you to jot these things down. But most importantly, if, even if you don't get the whole list or all the definitions, um, I want you to process through this and say, hey, that might be a place where shame is at work in my life. And I need to think about that. I need to deal with that. I need to talk to someone about that. So the first one is this, inferiority. Inferiority. This comes from a pattern of failure or from a, a pattern of failure or from one or two moments of failure um, where the self-perception develops that we are worse than others and inferior to them. Because we made a mistake, we assume others are better than us because they didn't make that mistake, at least as far as we know. This can also lead in, in, into self-pity, where we're viewing ourselves as a victim uh, of my actions or of someone else's actions, and subsequently a perpetual feeling, a, a perpetual feeling sorry for myself. Um, if we believe poorly about ourselves, then we find comfort in the low expectation that we have. And because we expect little, then we are seldom disappointed. And so we settle into this place of self-pity and low expectations for ourselves and for our life because we know if we don't expect too much of ourselves, then we can't be disappointed. And so this inferiority leads to self-pity, and, uh, and that leads us to things like habitual destructive behavior. Habitual destructive behavior. And this means that if I see myself lacking worth, then I treat myself with little value or I treat myself destructively. So the, the phrase that maybe the thought that comes into our, lot, into our head is, I'm not worthy to, of taking care of. And so this can lead to substance abuse. Um, it can lead to unnecessary risk-taking or, or, or risky actions in life. It could lead to 
unhealthy diet. It could lead to things um, like thinking just that I have no future, and so I'm going to live like I have no future. Uh, I'm hopeless when I look into the future, and so who cares what I do today? And, and just can lead to this destructive behavior. Uh, it could also lead to passivity. Passivity. This is refusing to invest in relationships and responsibility. Again, the thought in our, that we hear in our head is, if I'm a failure, why should I invest myself in relationships and important responsibilities where I can fail again? And so instead of engaging people in our life or relationships in our life, instead of engaging important projects or responsibilities that may be in our life, we say, I'm going to remain passive to those things. I'm not going to engage because I'm afraid of more failure in my life. Um, number four, busyness. Uh, this is connected to that passivity, but instead of, uh, it's a form of passivity that I overinvest in some things that are of little consequence or that I can't fail at. So uh, in doing so, then I can avoid important, um, then I can avoid important, meaningful relationships and responsibilities. And so this may be at work, you may find yourself just engaging lots of small menial tasks. So at the end of the day, you can say, look what all I got done, but I'm avoiding this one big project I need to get some work done on because you know that's going to be hard. And that big project, you're afraid uh, it's got a lot of consequences if you don't do it right. And, uh, and so you avoid that um, because you're avoiding the failure uh, and continued failure in that. Or at home, it may just be f engaging the busyness of hobbies or of cleaning or something like that. That's, uh, you're just staying busy so you don't have to invest. Again, being passive. Number five, harsh criticism and perfectionism. So the shame then leads us to be critical of self and sometimes of others. Um, this comes from a clear awareness of our personal flaws. When, we're, when our personal flaws are always in front of us, we're always thinking about how uh, we have this flaw. Um, then uh, the personal perfectionism is an, is an attempt to do something right that we hope will overcome what we see is wrong with us. And so sometimes we can become perfectionists um, or become very, very critical of ourselves. Um, that leads to that perfectionism. And then in the same way, we see the flaws in others and it reminds us of our own issues. And we, and we point it out in other people, either to make us feel better of our issues or simply as saying to them uh, what we are saying to ourselves. And it comes off as being judgmental or arrogant, but really it's us coping with personal dislike and secret shame. That phrase uh, that uh, hurt people hurt people becomes true. And so we're hurting inside, but then we begin to hurt others, either being uh, through our criticism and our perfectionism towards ourselves or towards them. Number seven or number six um, is isolation and withdrawal. Isolation and withdrawal. This becomes a reality when we, uh, to avoid the risk of rejection and failure, we simply withdraw from meaningful interactions with others. Again, the, the thing that repeats in our head is that if I'm, if I'm close with you, or if I'm not close with you, then you can't find out what's wrong with me. And so we keep people at arm's length. We only let them get to know us a little bit and we isolate ourselves. We avoid interaction with other people and certainly meaningful interaction with other people. We become withdrawn in our community. We become withdrawn in our uh, spheres of influence and we isolate ourselves. Number seven is connected to this and this is real for a lot of us. Uh, facade creation, facade creation. Simply, uh, similarly, we develop facades that allow us to be socially active but keep others from seeing our hurt and from hurting us again. A lot of times this is uh, why we have social media accounts. 
so that we can present a version of ourselves to the world around us to say, hey, look, I'm out here on these adventures. I'm out here living my best life. I'm out here, I'm out here doing really well when really what's happening beneath the surface is we are falling apart. Uh, we are keeping people uh, at arm's length and we're not doing well. We're becoming isolated and unhealthy. We're finding ourselves in dark places, but on the facade, what we're presenting to others uh, looks really good. And so we find ourselves building these facades in our lives. Number eight, we have a, a loss of creativity. And this one's really interesting, um, but we've become so preoccupied with our own inferiority that we are unable to come up with new ideas, believing that we will fail if we try something new. So we stick to what's proven, successful, and risk-free. Many of you I know are very creative people, and God has given you, given you that creativity so that you can, uh, you can solve problems so that you can uh, create beautiful things, so you can write the songs that change the world. But you're, you're in bondage within shame. Uh, and in that, that shame says, no, you're no good. That shame says, no, your creativity is not good. And so subsequently, you don't do what God's called you to do or what God has given, gifted you to do. And, and, and in that, uh, the world, not only are you hurting, but the world is hurting because you're not giving. Um, you're not being able to do what God can do through you. And so when you, if you recognize you have uh, a loss of creativity in your life, it could be because shame is holding you back. Number nine, uh, codependent relationships. In an attempt to overcome shame, we can establish relationships uh, where we are needed. This is usually with a friend or a family member who has their own issues and addictive problems. Um, codependents look for significance in rescuing someone else almost like a savior situation. I can help you. I can save you. I can help. Uh, I can rescue you. This, this backfires, however, because the dependent person then uses shame to manipulate us, saying that we are being selfish for taking, if we ever try to take care of ourselves instead of their personal needs. The cycle ensues of us trying to gain the approval of the dependent and feeling more shame because of our own lack of self-worth. And so this cycle ensues of us trying to earn their approval and trying to rescue them, and it doesn't get any better, and so we feel worse about ourselves. Number 10, and this is another big one, despising our appearance, despising our appearance. Most of us are ashamed of at least one aspect of our physical appearance, and subsequently we change our behavior and spend money and time trying to cover it up or alter parts of our physical self that we think don't stand up to the comparison of others or we simply disengage and once again isolate. We say, I think I'm ugly, I think this part about me is ugly, or this part is unacceptable. And so we try to cover it up, or we try to stay away from people so that they won't see that, so they won't say anything about it to protect ourselves um, from more hurt, and which then again leads us to isolation. As I read through this list of things, some of them are very real to me. I remember uh, very early in our marriage, um, that uh, we needed to get new car insurance. I'd been on my parents' car insurance uh, all my life, and uh, it was time for us to grow up and get our own. And I remember being so um, in a place of shame where, uh, with the thought that was going on in my life is, Matthew, you're dumb, and you're not ready to be a grown-up. Um, because I didn't know how to get my own car insurance. I didn't know how to do it. Uh, and I remember it was so hard for me to talk, to talk about it with April. And I kept putting it off and putting it off. And, uh, and, and finally I did. And, and she brought it out of me. And I was like, hey, it was exposed. And it seemed so silly once it was finally brought out. And I remember looking back, I just went to, you know, Geico and save 15% or whatever. But uh, and it was really an easy thing. But it, it, deep inside, there was like this, this emotion of shame that I wanted to hide because I felt dumb. Um, 
I also even realities I read through this uh, of relationships in my life uh, more recently where I recognize I've hurt others in my relationships uh, or I, ha- I didn't do it well. I messed up and there's relationships with places in my marriage, places uh, in friendships, places in work relationships and as a pastor and in, um, in, in, in helping with others. And, uh, and, and in those relationships, I, I think about that. I, I know I messed up. But again, what this, the words I began to hear in my life is not just that I messed up, but I am messed up. There's something wrong with me and my personality, the way I hear and, and process stuff, it, that something's wrong with me. And, I, and, uh, and subsequently, I need to stay away from those kinds of relationships. And I began to feel this desire, this push to isolate. And so this is very real. I know it's real for you. I know somewhere on that list, you, you said, that's me. I do that. That's my thing. And, uh, and within us, I, I want us to know, I want you to know, first of all, that this is not new. That this is not new to you, this isn't, and this isn't unique, unique to you. We're all wrestling with this. We all experience this emotion of shame and the ramifications of it. And it's something that has been happening and been a part of us as humans and the human experience ever since the first humans, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And so I want us to look at a couple stories, starting in Genesis, of the first people and how this was a very real thing in their life. And so if you will, turn with me to the Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at Adam and Eve. And uh, up, up until this point in the story, we see the creation account. We see that God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He creates them and he gives them instructions about how they're to live and specifically how they're not to eat. One thing they're not to do is to eat from this one specific tree. And we'll pick up in verse six with what happens when they did. And it says this, Genesis chapter three, starting in verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it, and she also gave some of some of her some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, and made coverings for themselves. You notice that as soon as they recognized something was wrong, they reacted. And I know that we all have experienced this. You were going about your day. You said, oh, this seems like a good idea. Uh, this seems like a shortcut. This seems like a, I'm curious about this. And so you engaged in something as soon as you did said, ooh, I, I shouldn't have done that. I messed up. Immediately, you knew that something was wrong. And it's what we see in here. And their immediate response was to cover up, to sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. They covered themselves up. Verse eight, it says this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid, and I imagine this almost cartoonic, frantic run for cover, bumping into each other and bumping into trees as they dive into a bush in this picture of like, hey, we've got to hide. They heard God coming and they said, quick, we did something wrong, let's hide. In verse nine, God says this, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? Now, I don't know if that strikes you as odd. We believe God is all-knowing and He's everywhere and there's nothing that escapes His attention. And so you wonder, why is He saying, asking this question, where are you? This is like the easiest game of hide-and-seek for Him. Uh, he knows where they are. But I think that God is giving them an opportunity to respond. He asks a question to give them an opportunity to respond to Him. Verse 10, Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So I hid. 
First they cover themselves and then they hide. The reality is that shame, this emotion of shame, leads us or pushes us to hide. Pushes us to hide. And we do this in lots of different ways. Adam and Eve, they hid physically. They jumped behind a bush. But we could also hide socially. We could also hide emotionally. And we can hide intellectually. In fact, they tried to. When you skip down to verse 12, we see that God's questioning them and said, why'd you do this again? Giving them opportunity to respond. And the man said in verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So he begins to hide almost rhetorically, like in his speech and intellectually, he said, hey, it's your fault. Let me hide by saying, hey, let me, by shifting blame. And the woman does the same thing. She shifts blame and says it's the, it's the snake's fault. We try to hide in lots of different ways. It's not just jumping behind bushes or pulling our shirt over our head, but it's, uh, it's, it's hiding in, uh, intellectually or, or emotionally. We hide. John Bloom, in an article on Desiring God called Breaking the Power of Shame, he says this, We hide in our homes or away from our homes. We hide in our rooms and in our offices. We hide in housework, in yard work, in garage puttering. We hide behind computers and phones, in newspapers and magazines. We hide behind earphones and Netflix and ESPN. We hide behind fashion facades, education facades, career facades, social media facades, and ministry facades. We hide in busyness and procrastination. We hide in outright lies and diversionary conversations. We hide behind sullen sadness and snarky humor. We hide behind bravado and timidity. We hide in extroversion and introversion. We hide. We cover. We have a hiding problem. <laughs> Interestingly, God knows this about us. He knows that our desire in light of our sin and brokenness, that our shame pushes us to hide. If you skip down to verse 21 of this passage, we see that God takes care of this. He recognizes this need and our desire to hide. But it says this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Uh, before tw verse 21, we see that God pronounces the curses. Um, and then he gets to 21, it says, you can't stay, uh, within this passage, he says, you can't stay in the garden anymore. Now there's separation between us because of your sin. You can't stay here, but he's going to send them out. And before he does so, he covers them. He says, those fig leaves you've made for yourselves won't do. Your hiding behind a bush won't do, but he provides for them these garments of skin. He provides for them a better covering. So it doesn't say explicitly that what, where these skins came from, but the assumption is that they're animal skins. And if you, they're skins from an animal, then that means something had to die. Something sacrificed its life to provide what they needed. And this is foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing God's provision, ongoing provision, and covering of our shame for us. And if this is foreshadowing, it's appropriate for us then to go what this is foreshadowing of. And that takes us to Luke chapter 8, where we will see this other story of the one that's being foreshadowed. We'll go to Luke chapter 8 and read verses 40 through 48 of this story where we begin to see Jesus interact with people. And we see the story of him interacting with two, two people and, uh, and the difference between them and what he says about the shame that is represented. Starting in verse 40, it says this. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. 
this point in his ministry, he, be, he was beginning to gather fame. People had heard of him, and, and uh, so they're all meeting him here in this town, 41. Then a man named Jarius, a synagogue leader, which meant he was an important person, a religious leader in that community, and everybody knew who he was. Notice his name is given as Jarius. Jarius came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there, and she had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And Mark's version of this says that she had spent all of her family's money to try and deal with this issue, and none of the doctors could help her. This, uh, this statement here of subject to bleeding, that's a polite way of saying that she had a disease or a condition that produced an uncontrollable menstrual flow, which means that not only was she sick, but she was li likely uh, suffering um, severe chronic pain. Probably she was anemic from the loss of blood, which made her prone to other diseases and constant fatigue. Plus, she was unable to have children. And all of these things began to compound. These issues began to compound in her life. Not only that, but also according to Jewish law, she was ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, which was something that was true for, for women. That every month when they, during their menstrual cycle, they, were, they would be outside of the community because of that ceremonially unclean. This means that she wasn't allowed in public. Uh, no public worship, no place where others could come in contact with her. So the reality that she was here with this crowd was something she shouldn't have been doing, somewhere she wasn't supposed to be. It means that no one had touched her for 12 years or else they too would become unclean. For 12 years, no one had hugged her. No one had laid a hand on her to pray for her. She was an outcast and you can imagine she was lonely. The shame of her condition and who she was had brought suffering into her life. She suffered from shame and this suffering was physical and social uh, suffering. She suffers physically and socially and psychologically from being outcast and also financially. I imagine her life, at one point in her life, 12 years ago, she had hopes and dreams for her life, maybe of one day getting married, uh, of having children, of being a part of this community that she lived in. But all of that seemed to be over now. She was hopeless. All of these conditions that we've talked about that shame lead us into, that was her daily reality. This Levitical law, which seems confusing to us, uh, you can read about it throughout the Old Testament in Leviticus and, and in Exodus and the giving of the law. And it, was an, had, it served an important part in that community in, the, in, the ancient, in ancient Israel. Um, the point of this, and, and I want to make note of this because this is where we connect with the story. Uh, the Levitical law that declared the, people, declared the people's uncleanliness was meant to point to, their, to the sins of the people. And there was ceremony, again, it's a ceremonial reality. And there was ceremony that they would then go through to help represent uh, that they had sin in their life and had to be dealt with. And the sacrificial system was created to help communicate their separation from God that then was dealt with by a sacrifice of something else. In this story, she represents all of us. The issue that she was experiencing that brought separation in her life from her community and from God um, was, is the reality that we experience in our own sin and shame. And this goes back to the garden in all of our lives. But so we see our own selves in her plight. At the same time, what we see through the story is we notice that her issues were not her own doing. 
As we said before, that shame isn't always a product of our sin, but sometimes it's a product of what someone else does to us or just a product of something that happens. For her, this is something she did not choose. It was something that happened to her. And J.D. Greer says in a sermon on this passage, he says, the point is whether our shame is legitimate shame that we have brought on ourselves or illegitimate shame, shame brought on by things done to us or things that happened to us. Whether, regardless of the situation, the solution is Jesus. The solution is Jesus. And here's what he means by that. Let's go to verse 44. She's in this crowd, and then she came up behind him, and she touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when all had denied it, Peter steps in. Master, um, the people are crowded around you, and they're pressing against you. We don't know who touched you, is what Peter is saying. And Jesus is like, yes, I'm well aware, Peter. Thank you for pointing that out, Captain Obvious. But once again, we see Jesus ask this question, who touched me? And it's just like back in the garden where the Father, where God says, where are you? Jesus is presenting an opportunity for her to respond, presenting an opportunity for her to come out of her hiding, to come out of her shame and respond to him. Verse 46, it says this. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that she could not hide, could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. You see here that the woman, she thought she would get away with it. She thought she would remain anonymous, that she would steal this miracle and, uh, and then just slip back in through the crowd and go home. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had made, been made instantly healed. Notice that she responds differently than in the last story, but she goes to Jesus seeking this healing. She told them, and then she tells them why she had touched him. She reveals there in front of everyone, which probably they knew that she had this issue. And that community, without a doubt, over 12 years, word had spread they recognize, oh, here she is. Here's the unclean one. What is she doing here? And then she, be, but her talking about this, this is why I touched him. And this is what's happened. And in that moment, you began to see her coming out of her hiding. You began to see that shame just melt away. And she reveals herself and de-isolates herself, if you will. But in the broader story here, don't miss what's happening. Again, there's another character that Luke in this passage decides to mention. Notice that she is known as the sick woman, but he, the other character, has a name, and his name is Jairus. The sick woman, even if you refer to this story in the Bible, if you've read this story before, you may say to someone, you know that story about the sick woman? And then the follow-up question is, oh, you mean the one that had the bleeding problem? This woman is known by her issue. She's known by her condition. Her name isn't even given. She's just known as the sick woman, the bleeding woman, compared to this powerful religious leader who had a name, and who is going there on behalf of his 12-year-old daughter. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old, and her powerful dad was there to get her help. That young woman, that 12-year-old girl, she was somebody connected to someone important. But this other woman, the sick woman, was alone. For 12 years, she had been alone with no help. She had no one to help her get help. She was a nobody connected to no one. She was nameless. She was alone. Her shame had brought her to this place of hiding, this place of isolation. 
But Jesus, in verse 46, something happens. Watch this. Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. It's a powerful phrase that he communicates to her. And he says it, uh, he calls her daughter. Shame isolates and disconnects us from others and makes us feel alone. But he says, no longer are you disconnected with no advocate. You are someone and I will be your advocate. He doesn't call her stranger or ma'am or sister or friend, but a term of most intimate endearment, daughter. Some commentators say that this could easily be interpreted or read as sweetheart, a pet name. It's the only place in the gospel where Jesus addresses someone this way. It's the kind of word that you would never say to someone you just met. Think about what's happening. The girl that nobody wanted, Jesus refers to as precious sweetheart, daughter. The name nobody else knows, Jesus knows. But he's on more than a first name basis with her immediately. He's on a tender nickname basis. And that is what Jesus does with the unwanted. And from this story, that's what I want you to hear. If you are in shame, if you are believing things about yourself, that you are unwanted, that you are unworthy, that's what Jesus says to you. That's what he does with the unwanted. He finds them in their pain, calls them loved, makes them sons and daughters. She touches the edge of, her, of his cloak. Notice this. She touches the edge of his cloak. In ancient language, this was known uh, as the Casperdon. It was like a blue tassel on the edge of his uh, garment, and it represents the Jewish man's obedience to the law. So she touched that part that represents his ritual purity. So there she is. She came to touch part of him. In her impurity and her uncleanliness, she touches the part that's pure and clean that represents that. You notice that this is almost backwards, even in our thinking today. In the last year, we recognize in the midst of COVID-19 that if you've been exposed to someone who had COVID-19 or if you began to show symptoms, our next steps are to remove ourselves from others. Don't touch anybody. Don't come into contact with others. Go be in your room by yourself, right? In the last year, the CDC has never said, hey, if you think you might have COVID-19, go and hang out with healthy people and maybe their healthiness will rub off on you. But that's not what happens here. In, in this situation, it, it defies what normal is. Instead, she goes to Jesus. This woman who's un, considered unclean goes to Jesus who is pure. And th from that interaction, she leaves pure. Jesus says to her, you go in peace. You've been made clean. Your faith has healed you. And it's as if Jesus absorbs her uncleanliness. Jesus takes away the thing that has been her identity and gives her a new name. Jesus takes away the shame and takes it on himself. And that's true for you as well. If it's, uh, whether it's your own sin has brought you shame, he takes away your sin and he takes it with him to the cross. At this point in the story, Jesus is moving towards the cross where he would die and take away our sin and our shame and offer us forgiveness. And if it's a sin that's been done to you that brings you shame, you need to know that Jesus comes to you and he takes away that shame and he gives you a new name. And just like he says to her, you are my daughter, then he says to us, you are my son, you are my daughter. 
Shame begins to mess with our head. Not only does it begin to feed us these lies of who we are, but it begins to begin to attach our identity to these, these things that bring shame. And it begins to say these things and question who we are. And if you're dealing with shame and you're a follower of Jesus, then you need to ask yourself this question, who are you? And then you need to answer that question with who Jesus and who God says you are. And so when you ask that question, who are you? The answer is, I am forgiven. I am free. I am redeemed. I am healed. I am brand new. I'm changed. I am chosen. I am blessed. I am beloved. I am complete. And I am a child of God. With that reality in mind, I want to give us a few final steps, things you can do in processing your shame and where to go from here. I've mentioned these already at least once today, but I just want to make sure they're highlighted and clear for us. And the first one is this. The first thing you can do is talk to God about your shame. When you feel these emotions of shame come, on, come, on, come over you, see what they're pointing at and what they're connected to, talk to God about those things. We see in both these stories today that there was a moment there where God asked a question, where are you? Who touched me? And in this moment, he's asking you, uh, maybe today is the moment where you respond. Where are you? What's going on in your life? And this is your opportunity to respond to God. To say, God, this is what's happening in my life. This is where I'm experiencing shame. This is where I'm hiding. The second thing you can do as soon as you, as soon as you say that to God is then hear what he has to say to you. What does God have to say to you? And the best place to hear that is to read the Bible throughout Scripture. Everything else in that list of who we are in Christ points to who, or comes from Scripture and reveals who we are in him. And so to read the Bible, and if I could recommend a passage of Scripture to you, I'd say start in Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14, where over and over it says who we are in Christ. Also, I encourage you once again to go to resonate.net slash resources, where there's an article there called Tackling Shame. And part of that, there's some action steps you can take, and some of that is just to read Scriptures, and there's some other verses that you can engage with there and say, what do these verses, what is God saying to you through the Scripture? And then finally, once you've talked to God and you've heard what He had to say and you process these things and you maybe begin to process this and think about this with your huddle with people that God has put in your life, talk to others about your shame. The exercises on that, on that resource page is great content for your huddle to engage with together. And to talk with others, God has put you in relationships with other people. That whole sermon series that we just finished was about community. And God has put people in your life so that we can process things like this together. We can talk about this together. And to, I know that it seems terrifying to say, I'm going to bring this up with people. That's the whole point. I've been trying to hide it from others. But to come out of hiding and to say, hey, this is what's going on in my life. This is where I am. And to allow uh, God to communicate his love through the people that he has put in your life. I want us to know and walk away from the day. And know that from what we see in both of these stories is that shame leads us to hide. What I want us to know is that hiding is not a bad thing. But the question is, where are you hiding? Or more specifically, in whom are you hiding? Allow your feelings of shame to push you to God and draw you in out of that hiding place and make God your hiding place. May that be what happens. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you know where we are. God, you know when we're trying to hide. You know we're trying to hide somewhere other than you. 
God, we ask that you would make this clear to us today. God, these moments within uh, this sermon, that you, these scriptures and, and these points, God, that you have revealed to us that we are hiding in shame. We are hiding from you. We are hiding from others in our life. God, draw us out of those places. God, bring us out of isolation. God, take away our shame as you remind us that you've taken away our sin. God, give us a new name that we're no longer hounded by these thoughts of unworthiness and, uh, and of negativity, but God, draw us out of that and remind us of the new name that you've given us. You call us sons and daughters, that we are sons and daughters of the Most High. God, do that work in us. We pray that and we ask that. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ and we pray with hope. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting resonate.net.